0: You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. My very special guest today on The Luxury Item is Milton Pedraza, the CEO of The Luxury Institute. The Luxury Institute provides research, training, and elite business solutions for luxury and premium goods and services brands. Over the last 16 years, the Luxury Institute has served over 1,100 luxury and premium goods and services brands. Milton advises and coaches luxury CEOs and advises and serves on the boards of top-tier luxury and premium brands, as well as luxury and premium startups. He is a member of the advisory board at the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. He is a frequent speaker at corporate events worldwide. He is known for his practical, innovative, and humanistic insights and recommendations on luxury and high performance. Milton is an often quoted global luxury industry expert and is recognized authority on personal data economy, privacy and personalization, customer relationship management, and artificial intelligence technologies. Prior to founding the Luxury Institute, his successful career at Fortune 100 companies included executive roles at Altria, PepsiCo, Colgate, Citigroup, and Wyndham Worldwide. Milton is a frequent guest speaker at Columbia University. He's also been recognized as a top Latin entrepreneur by Stanford Business School. So welcome to the luxury item, Milton. I'm so excited to have you on.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: So I was going to add to your bio, you know, from our last conversation that um, that you have become sort of an expert at weaving in pop culture references in conversations. I don't know if anybody has told you that, but um, that is a really special skill to have. So I appreciate that. Thank you. I don't know how many you'll drop in this conversation, but if you could find one or two, I'd I'd really appreciate that. I'll do my best. <laughs> so tell me how a little about the luxury institute, you know, why you started it, you know what it does and how you work with clients.
1: I was a corporate executive around 2003. I was working in the luxury segment. I saw a tremendous opportunity in luxury because wealth was a growing industry, if you will. I had been to over 120 countries and I had lived in seven and I had seen how the former communist countries had turned into capitalists, albeit crony capitalists, (laughs) but just seemed the world was going uh, capitalist and the luxury industry would thrive because of this opening up of the world economies. I also saw an opportunity to inject research, quantitative, qualitative, into the luxury industry. It was very instinctual, if you will. People made decisions out of gut. And by the way, it works, but I think we could, and I thought we could enhance it. And then finally, I just saw as a consumer and with my colleagues that the luxury industry had great products, sometimes great venues, but the experience uh, delivered by the associates was not emotionally intelligent. And I saw that as an opportunity to transform the industry from within, not to be Ralph Nader, because I respect him. But to work with the companies to really help them because they recognized that they needed help.
0: So it's interesting that, you know, you're talking about the luxury industry, and it is a very creative industry. And gut feel was how they made decisions, and many still do, but not not as much as before. How did you find working with clients um, when you first started to sell them on the concept of research and insights and and less about gut or how to mix the two. I was curious to how you what you recommended to them.
1: I think at first uh, we realized that uh, research could only help to enhance the client experience. There was a lot of trial and error and I think there were leaders like Louis Vuitton and others who recognized that uh, you could have great creative genius and you could complemented and supplemented, and it was not a compromise to bring in the voice of the customer, it was an optimize. So we worked with those companies that at first were very open, and then I think everybody just kind of realized that, yeah, the voice of the customer, we say we're customer-centric, but if we don't inject the voice of the customer, then we're not going to be uh, optimizing our performance.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you talk about the emotional emotional intelligence, and on your website, you talk about this emotional intelligence revolution. And I'm just quoting right from your site. I'm curious to hear what you're saying because I, I found it fascinating. It says, you, said on, you say on your website, in today's world, every individual should strive to have the expertise of Steve Jobs and the emotional intelligence of Mother Teresa. At the Luxury Institute, we serve every client with a purpose to demonstrate our expertise, deep empathy, trustworthiness, and generosity in every interaction. So can you talk about it? Is that, is that like the, the credo of, of the Luxury Institute?
1: Yes, and it came about because about, I would say, almost 10 years ago, um, Marco Bizzari, uh, then the CEO of Bottega Veneta, came to us and essentially challenged us. He said, you know, you guys are like the scorekeepers. You should be coaching, and I want to help my associates be far beyond transactional, treat them well, and have them be relationship builders. So we realized that we couldn't just do the typical training program that we really needed to study. And we found that neuroscience, neuroscientists had been working for 20 years understanding how emotional intelligence builds, well how you inherently have the need to bond and to connect. Human connection is so critical and then we studied it more and there were techniques available to help humans to enhance their emotional intelligence. So we worked with Marco, we also worked with him at Gucci Uh, In 2015, but over the years, we've developed a body of knowledge, but then we also realized we needed to distill that emotional intelligence set of principles. In some cases, when you looked at it, Yale University, Daniel Goleman, all these great uh, pioneers in Mm -hmm. emotional intelligence, but they had 60 or 20 core competencies that you had to master. And we said, no, we have to be able to distill it so that executives and associates can use it on a daily basis with intent and with creativity. So one of the things we really fought hard to eliminate was the scripting of salespeople because it took away their humanity. Not only did it dehumanize them, it made it uh, very difficult for the client to relate to them. So we said, okay, we need a framework. And so you need to be an expert. So expertise, not only in your domain, in your product, but in yourself, you need to be self-aware. You need to be aware of what other humans Mm -hmm. are communicating. Empathy. Empathy is the ability to listen with the intent to help and to ask relevant questions with the intent to help not to sell not to coerce not to dominate but to help another human being trustworthiness which is the ability to demonstrate that especially in a commercial environment i'm here to serve your interests first and foremost and then i will get value back but if i don't do that first i don't earn your trust that i'm here to serve your interests and then I think the little piece de resistance, the, the other element that we found from interviewing lots of top salespeople and psychologists and neuroscientists was that generosity and kindness, and by the way, not random acts of kindness, but deliberate and conspiratorial kindness right. that you try to exert with every human being. It's impossible, but uh, you, you shoot for the impossible. But that was the other ingredient, that you needed to be an expert and empathic and trustworthy, but that kindness... Really sealed the deal in helping you demonstrate that you can create great, extraordinary experiences. You can make people feel special. And by the way, you make yourself feel special. So, so it was a, a double win. So
0: can you, can you really train for someone to be, be emotionally intelligent?
1: I think uh, the vast majority of people, yes. I think if you have some kind of psychological challenge... And you're beyond because you really do need help from psychologists. Right. Okay. Then I understand. But the normal human being, the average person, yes. In other words, we're wired for that. We're wired to connect and to bond. Uh, Maslow's theory of uh, you know need talks about shelter and food. But what uh, other psychologists and neuroscientists have been saying is that no, that's not the beginning. The beginning is that some human being who gives you birth. Or other human beings, when you're a baby, bond with you and they tolerate all your faults and flaws (laughs) as a baby. And if they didn't, then you would never have that food and shelter. So human connection and human bonding are so critical to life that I think every human being has it and has the potential to evolve. Some of us have have been been children who have had challenging childhoods and experiences. Mm -hmm. So it kind of numbs us or it kind of takes it away. And let's face it, in the Industrial Revolution, the schools were like Matilda, the play Matilda, where they really, you know, you do as you're told. Uh, you're not supposed to think, be creative, express emotion. So the Industrial Revolution kind of wired children and workers to take the humanity out of them. I think we're in a completely different era. And I have to say, the other day I was talking to a head of retail who is particularly nurturing and caring and therefore gets great results. And she said to me, now that emotional intelligence and robots and many other technological, uh, technological innovations perform the tasks that we used to have to do, right. like
0: we're giving them up. we giving those tasks up. Yep.
1: She said, the job is all about people now. It's about people and how do you inspire, not perspire? How do you help people work under pleasure and not under pressure? So it's changing dramatically. Uh, some people haven't gotten the memo. We call that expired experience and inspired <laughs> mindset. Uh, But most people are getting it and they're thrilled that they can now manifest their humanity and that that creates value. And therefore, they are successful not only economically, but emotionally.
0: So how do you think luxury retailers should start using emotional intelligence in the way, uh, as far as customer service is concerned?
1: Well, I think I would say that in the last 10 years, the focus has been on technology. And by the way, efficiency matters. So technology is important. What they haven't done is complement the investment in technology with investing in educating, not training. You train puppies, and even <laughs> puppies should be educated, not trained, okay? Because there's an element of humanity right. in all of us, including animals, if you will. So the, it's how do you educate through practice, through coaching, through, yes, instruction, but not classroom instruction. You know, emotional intelligence and human connection is not something that you learn from a video. Right. Uh, You can learn the principles, but then you have to practice. So what we've done with our Accelerate program, and it has had great results, is to help develop the framework. So learn that expertise and empathy and trustworthiness and generosity are a good framework to start. And if anybody else can add another element, great. But then you have to take that and let humans be creative within that framework, whatever you sell. So you have to be an expert in your product, in your service. You have to become an expert on people. The most important thing you need to do is treat yourself like an elite athlete. Mm -hmm. I often walk into rooms and I say, well, if Serena Williams or Roger Federer said, ah, you know, I'm not going to practice for the US Open. I've mastered that. We would laugh and we would think they were negligent, right? Right. Because the way to be a great athlete is to practice daily. It's to have a coach. It's to be coachable. It's to be incredibly self-aware. Athletes today have video, Mm -hmm. you name it. They have so many ways to understand their performance and their competition. We have to put those elements into the emotional intelligence effort in corporations. And that sounds strange to people. You know, you have to treat yourself like an elite athlete. But if you use many of the elements of uh, sports, professional sports, in particular college sports, and you inject some of those elements for 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day into a store environment, into a call center environment, and you create an environment that you can see in sports these days, the, pardon my French, the A-holes right. do not succeed very well. Right, It's the coaches who inspire, not perspire, who are, and bring people together who are succeeding in sports, in women's sports, in men's sports. So you you can take elements from professional sports and see the success, not all the elements, but then apply them to how do I become a better human being? And I think the, the best uh, testimonial I can give you for that is from someone at Gucci uh, in Beverly Hills who said to us, okay, my sales are up 101% in six months. My relationships with my peers, my manager, and my clients are great. But the most important thing did, this did for me was to improve my personal life. So what we're talking about is in the corporation, forget about teaching people business skills. Teach them life, life skills. skills. Right. And those will pervade and those will permeate and your organization will be better off.
0: Do you, that's great. Do you have specific training programs with, with clients that you do on emotional intelligence? And yes. what other, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, and what other types of, how else do you work with clients?
1: Well, we conduct a lot of research for right. clients. Quantitative, qualitative, primary, secondary. And
0: what are they usually trying to find out? Is there some common theme when they hire you for research that, that, they're, that they don't have data to internally that they can turn to you for?
1: Well, I would say... Asian companies Mm -hmm. want to get into the luxury industry in certain segments. So we've worked with Korean companies and Chinese companies to help them get into travel, home appliances, technology, uh, products for the home. Uh, So very often it's a 10-year journey where we start taking them in a a van uh, to Greenwich, Connecticut Mm -hmm. or Bergen County, New Jersey and teaching them about how the affluent live, taking them to auto dealerships, etc. Automotive is also a big area. And then all the way through to launching the product and then um, helping their people to be those emotional intelligent uh, experts that, that uh, are going to help them to not right. sell, but to build relationships that result in sales and in mm-hmm. long-term um, revenue. Um, most of the, let's say, more incumbent companies in luxury mm-hmm. are looking for some edge, whether it's how do you develop better products. And so we sometimes do product research. Uh, but uh, mostly these days it's, okay, I have great products or very competitive products. How do I inspire my people? How do I generate that energy that then drives performance? And so performance measured by conversion rates when people walk into the store. Uh, outreach. It used to be that the job of a store was to sit around and wait for the traffic to come right. in. Today, nothing could be further Can't from that, the truth. Right? right. So it's about outreach, clienteling, relationship building. I mean, we know some sales associates who are top performers who live only on referrals. Not only because they ask respectfully and in a humane way for referrals, but because they deliver such great service and experiences that people want to refer. Right. I remember I talked to the one uh, travel agent and she said to me, um, well, the way I get referrals is I say, bring me somebody as wonderful as you are. <laughs> and people do.
0: When they look at some of the sales associates, and the top performers are they also reimagining how these sales associates engage on their own social media platform? Because a lot of these sales associates are actually influencers in their own right. Very much. So, so. I'm curious to find hear from you in some of the clients that you speak with. Are they acknowledging that that they have you know, or, or are they trying to shift some of their strategy at retail where their sales associates actually have a large social footprint and a large following? to drive them into the store as well, as well as obviously having emotional intelligence. That's a
1: great objective. Right. It's a journey. Uh, I will walk sometimes into uh, clients or prospective clients, and they don't even give their associates a, uh, an email. Uh, so the associates, the best associates are saying Milton.Pedraza at Luxury Institute at Google uh, at Gmail.com because I have to make <laughs> up my own. So the best people have always broken the rules, the right. silly rules including being on social media. So right now you're seeing, you know, we've told uh, our clients, sometimes they have 5,000, 7,000 salespeople, that that is a community of massive energy that you can use for the good of your clients and for the company. But many brands and their agencies have obstacles. They put up walls. Oh, you're not brand appropriate. And that's going away, right? right? Because the world is a little bit more of a free-for-all and everything used to be staged and now it's a little bit more impromptu. So I'd say that's a journey. I would say I know of no brand that is, uh, how would I say, inspiring the salespeople Mm -hmm. to be so active on social media. They do post photos and things like that, but they are not maximizing that that energy or that resource. Um, So it's a journey. I think in the next few years, we'll see it unleash. But right now, it's still, unfortunately, clamped down upon.
0: Great. So, you know... I'm really excited. Actually, the timing is perfect for this podcast. You just released the State of the Luxury Industry 2020, and looking at it, looks like everything is rosy for the uh, for the luxury goods and services sector, and the brands really have benefited from this, you know, positive macroeconomic tailwinds. So, if you could tell the audience a little bit how you conducted the survey. You know who you surveyed. You know what types of questions you asked. Is this and do you ask the same questions every year when you have the state of the luxury?
1: Those are a lot of questions. So the, yeah. it's online. Uh, we conducted in nine countries this year. Right. Uh, in the past year, um, and any we, new countries this year? Yes, I mean we we usually do the the top countries. Obviously, the U.S., China, Japan, right. um, the top European countries: mm-hmm. the Germany, Italy, right. France, UK. We've added uh, Australia, mm-hmm. and we've added Korea, because mm-hmm. Korea has become a powerhouse. As small in population right. as it is, it is one of the most uh, high-performing, most influential countries in the world, and it has phenomenal companies. K-pop came out of there. And right, of course. There's a lot of uh, beauty. There's a lot of influence from Korea. Um,
0: what about the Middle East?
1: We have done in previous the UAE in mm-hmm. years, uh, but to be honest, the privacy loss and then right. the ability uh, or the willingness of people to participate. Because right. This is the top 10% in income. And the reason we do income and not net worth is because in many countries, it's very difficult to get at that. Mm-hmm. And, and we wouldn't want to violate the privacy. These are people who volunteer. Right. So we conduct this survey and we usually start with the definition of luxury. And I can safely say that quality is still number and one on. after all the years. <laughs> that service has come up over the years and that brand heritage is less important. They want to know what have you done for me lately, right. yesterday, this
0: morning. Yep. I know heritage is sort of moving in the back of, towards the back of the line, but is that still the same for older affluent consumers as well?
1: It varies, yeah. but I would say since the tsunami of the millennial right. uh, is coming forth, um, it really is more about uh, younger people right. basically saying, "I it's not as important what you've done in the last 170 years. Mm-hmm. It We respect it, but how relevant are you now? And I think that's true for all ages. Right. So there's relevancy.
0: Yeah, I agree, but you know, there's still an element with heritage and craftsmanship, especially working together in hand in hand, and they do. It takes a while to build that. Right. It takes a while. Absolutely.
1: And that's why you see Louis Vuitton and Chanel and Hermes still at the top. Gucci, they've had decades or you know. Teflon brands. Well, they continue to evolve in a way that is relevant. Yeah. And that's not an easy task for when you have the weight uh, of history on your shoulders, but many companies do it well. And then some companies uh, are lost. And right. I don't want to name any of them, but no, I think we all know. But they're pretty to... obvious. Yeah.
0: So in your survey, I was just looking at some of the uh, the findings from it, and you said affluent consumers are more likely to spend uh, more on luxury items than less, and specifically focusing on health and fitness and wellness services. And we're seeing that all around, where that is the number one luxury that consumers are is about their health and wellness. I think even Jack Ma you know talks about that when he's speaking at conferences
1: yes and it's also because the boomers are aging rapidly unfortunately and they want to find solutions to lead healthier lives longer healthier lives not just longer lives but right. healthier lives mm-hmm. and the young are so aware and frankly very often they're aware because they have to take care of their parents and it's on un- it's unfortunate and it's a very difficult challenge when you have aging parents um and so they want to avoid that early on. They're recognizing that the the more I take care of myself from a health and wellness point of view, they say that the baby who will live 200 years has been born. It will take not only innovation, but it'll take a change of mindset, rewiring of the brain. It'll take uh, many habit habitual changes that we as boomers, unfortunately, didn't um, you know? It took us a while to stop smoking. Right, all, right, absolutely. Um, and we see some of that vaping and others, you know, trying to um, opioid addiction mm-hmm. and other things. But I think in general, society is moving towards that health and wellness.
0: And you said the top reasons for purchasing luxury goods are that they last longer and keep their value, and mm-hmm. they are a reward for hard earned success.
1: Yes, people love to pamper themselves because they work so hard. It's not arrogance or, you know, self-centeredness. For some it is, but people work hard. Life is hard. And being successful is extremely difficult. It's a 24-7 job. If you're a working mother and you have aging parents and you are still trying to be successful, it's very difficult. You have no time for yourself. So taking those little moments to nurture and rejuvenate yourself and regenerate yourself, very important for women and for men. And um, it's also that uh, not only when you get a facial, when you get a massage, not only does it help your body, but
0: it's great for your mind. It, it, it
1: uh, releases all the endorphins that help mm-hmm. you stay healthier and happier.
0: It also, the good news is also the stores remain the dominant channel for luxury goods. So, yeah. you know, pop the champagne cork for now. Uh, I said more than two-thirds of the purchases take place in-store with luxury buyers in France and in Canada, number one on top.
1: Yes, and I think what we have to say is there's different trends and they sort of come together, but sometimes we miss the signal for the noise. So we have been overstored in the United States and that is slowly but surely being fixed, right? We have too many stores, we have too many brands, and many of them are irrelevant. Uh, And so we've seen, and and the more online comes on stream, the more uh, you recognize what is and is not relevant. However, for luxury and for high priced, high value, high risk, high emotion goods and services, you do want to face to face. And so and you want to face to face because you want to know if you can trust. Apparently all the five senses when we are face to face as we are here, are triggered to understand and to provide information as to whether I can truly trust someone. That only happens face to face. It doesn't happen on a video, it doesn't happen on audio, right only face to face. So for high risk, high value, high investment. You want that. Plus the joy of not only engaging with the product and the experience, uh, whether it's technological, but also human. The joy and the wellness that you create. Loneliness is the top disease. Uh, It's been documented Mm -hmm. that it's like smoking a pack Mm -hmm. of unfiltered cigarettes per day or, you know, eating like 20 hamburgers. So it's very bad for your soul and it's very bad for your body to be lonely. And so we're always seeking to nurture and to replenish that humanity. And that's why I think stores will always be relevant as long as the brand delivers those human elements along with the technology and the beautiful product.
0: But your gut feel, just looking at the market now, right now the study said two-thirds of the purchases done in-store. Five years from now, do you think it'll be two-thirds?
1: No, I think it'll be less, but I think people will still go to stores. I think it'll go to, for example, if... uh, If online purchases are now 15%, they'll be 30%. Right. I think that will continue because there are a lot of tasks like, I don't want to carry the product home, ship it to me, but I still want to go in the store or in the venue. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a store, right? Store means literally storing inventory and selling it. That's right. I think that concept will go away. Um, it be a
0: showroom or whatever.
1: Yeah. It'll be, Scott, you'll have it uh, in half an hour at your home. Right. It'll be there before you arrive. Right. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the relationships and the venues and the experiences that I have in the store aren't relevant and that they will continue to be even more relevant and that will up the ante. So movie theaters now have a luxury element to them and I believe that all uh, venues, uh, you, uh, you know, whether it's uh, wellness, fitness, look at Equinox. I think there's a higher level th- that than Equinox delivers right now because the people at Equinox... Can be energized to be even more humanistic, as as much as I admire that brand. So I think that we're all always going to be upping the ante into relationship building, human connection. Yes, with all the bells and whistles that we get in the physical offering, but that without that human connection, that ah, uh, right, <laughs> that joy. Right. I mean, you're really selling joy and happiness to people. So how do you manifest that in the? I think the creativity to do that is endless. From a human perspective,
0: you know, in the uh, in the article that uh, about the the study that you did, you say in there, uh, for brands to truly capitalize on the abundant opportunity, they need to master an understanding of their customers' stated and unstated needs and desires, and execute brilliantly, treating each client as an individual human being. This is what we mean by omnipersonal relationships. And you've used that a bunch of times, and I've heard you talk about that. So, can you speak to the whole idea of omnipersonal relationships and if you think it luxury brands are, are adopting that strategy?
1: First, I will say that omnipersonal is not my original No, term. but I've heard you talk yes, about it. I loved use that. You it lo- when jumped I heard on it. it, right? Yes, I loved it when I heard it because it was beyond channels. Channels is a bad definition of what we're trying to achieve here. It's how can I engage you wherever you are? How can I come to you through whatever means, right? It could be through audio, video. It could be a delivery of a physical product. It could be, yes. (laughs) Um, So now instead of the customer coming to the product, as Natalie Massinet uh, from uh, NetApporte once said famously, the product comes to the customer, but it's not just the product. The experience can come to the customer wherever they are. Um, So how do you make people feel special when they're discovering online? How do you make them feel special when they land on your website? How and then they come to your store and go back to the website? It's a very nonlinear. That's mm-hmm. why it's omnipersonal. Everywhere you go. Now, I think that data and analytics will play a major role, but that um, the most important thing is that. As I, and I know you know I'm an advocate of personal data. Yes. Because I believe in true personalization. And what we, is
0: what are you calling true personalization?
1: True personalization is instead of me segmenting you, for example, into a persona, I treat you as an individual human being and I cater to your individual, let's say, idiosyncrasies, requirements, needs,
0: anticipatory needs.
1: Yes. I mean, I know you so well. Now, in order for that to happen, individuals are the only place where personal data can be gathered so richly in real time and then by consent. Provided to brands that I trust. So for example, my insurance company. If my insurance company comes to me and says, Milton, you own all the data that we have about you. It's not our data, it's your data. And Milton, because you own your data, we're going to create a personal data pod for you. And we're going to keep all your information about insurance so that you have that data store forever to for convenience. And Milton, because we earned your trust, we're going to ask you if we can track you Wherever you are, location data. So that when I go to, I'll put a local example, Mount Snow Mm -hmm. skiing, as soon as I land uh, at the bottom of the gondola, my insurance for accidents goes up. And as soon as I come out, it goes down. I like to joke that in in, in New York, since it's so dangerous to walk on the sidewalks and cross the street now. When you're on the sidewalk, you have one level of insurance, and when you, uh, you when you're like crossing the, the street, right. your insurance, right. uh, your accident insurance goes up. <laughs> so, but that's the kind of deep personalization right. that wherever you are, your insurance will be calibrated for the risk. Um, and then think about um, I, I always think of this. I think of LVMH and what a wonderful portfolio of brands they have. But they have a personal shopper for you, for each brand. Whereas if they could aggregate the data and they could say uh, Milton or Jane. Um, could we have your purchasing data for the last three years for and your travel data? And it belongs to you. We're going to create this little personal pod for you, this personal data store for you. It will contain all your data that you purchased for across all our brands. And we're going to complement that with all your purchase data and your location data, if right. you allow us. And we're going to personalize for you. We're really going to try to make recommendations that are so spot on, and but also with serendipity and creativity, you're going to be wowed. And by the way, all that data belongs to you. We will never sell it. We will secure it. We will encrypt it. But we will personalize for you as a human being. And that trust that I would have in those brands is priceless. That, that engenders loyalty. You don't get, need to give me discounts or points. You might have other value added. But discounts or points are not part of the equation because I'm so bonded to you by all of the trust and all of the, I would say, value added that mm-hmm. you give me when you do true personalization.
0: Right. I don't even think we're there yet. I mean. No, it's a journey. It's, it's a journey. And I, yeah. I think at least five to ten years away from that but that's very exciting especially yes but i would say this it's
1: not it's not a technological challenge that's not a technological feat right now i'm an investor in the personal data economy the technology is not the issue it's the quality of the data that you get when i trust you and when you uh commit to having that data be mine and even the insights that you generate about me belong to me when brands begin to do that, we don't need any third-party intermediaries. We don't need fake, you know, 1%, uh, 0.001% response rates from ads. Right. We have two relationships.
0: So I know the Luxury Institute has this network of luxury global leaders that they tap into the research that they called the, the Global Luxury Expert Network, or GLEN. Uh, you recently issued a white paper on the top seven trends that are likely to affect the industry in 2020, as predicted by these the GLEN Group, if you will, um, also very interesting. You know, number one was you know Chinese affluent consumers determine global luxury brand winners and losers, and we're seeing that every day. Yes. Um, just have to what's going on. They are dictating what's going on in the world as far as the luxury brand growth, and we're seeing a lot of brands trying to crack that market, or are doing a good job in that market, or are tripping on themselves in that market. Yes. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, it's just the power and the level of education, the level of sophistication, the level of digitization of China in China is just off the charts. Mm -hmm. And so these highly educated people, I was reading how uh, they have contests in China as to who can speak the best English. We don't even have that here. Right. So it's, uh, you know, they're really trying to strive for a society that's highly, very advanced. Now, they don't do everything, you know, by the book, you know, by the rules. So we have to protect ourselves. But I think that uh, the consumers, because they're now 40% of the luxury industry, and because they're creative and innovative, they're digital, they're helping us understand Mm -hmm. how we uh, determine the winners and losers in the marketplace. And that's really unexpected. They say that if um, the 19th century was the century of, let's say, uh, the Europeans and the 20th century was a century of America. I think there's a case to be made that the 21st century is a century of China. Mm-hmm. I would add Korea, Singapore, and mm-hmm. other Asian superbly uh, successful Asian countries into that mix. But um, and by the way, China has never invaded anybody, so I think we're okay.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly.
1: Uh, They've been invaded many times, right. but they never invaded. So I think that generally they tend to be more defensive than offensive, and so I think that. Um, the Chinese consumer, their travel, their education, their innovation, uh, one day maybe, maybe we may be copying them. But what I can say is that the level of sophistication and now the level of confidence that our members, uh, Glenn, who work in China, who live in China, are saying uh, th- it's at a really high level right now. And I think w- the idea is that the world will benefit, the luxury will benefit from it uh, because they're benevolent uh, right. leaders.
0: So I'm um, jumping to another one here, which I thought was interesting. It, you said that online luxury marketplaces face their moment of truth. Yes. What's the moment of truth?
1: The moment of truth is that um, when you discount uh, in order to, and you spend tons of marketing money in order to get clients who don't stay for very long, your economics don't work. We've seen it in Wayfair. We've, we're right. we're going to see it in Casper yep. very soon. Yep. But uh, the online multi-brand uh, providers, and I don't want to name them, but yep. you know who they are, mm-hmm. large and small. Mm-hmm. You've seen that they uh, they really have tripped up in the last mm-hmm. uh, year. And you see what the analysts say about the fact that they're just spending marketing. Uh, they are, uh, they're dependent on just a few luxury brands, even though they say they have a long tail. And so the economic model is broken. And I think what we're going to see is that uh, some of them are going to
0: go out of business fit, right or be acquired by a large right, company. right.
1: but you see what happens when uh, when you're acquired sometimes and it's not a fit and you uh, do you do, you do all kinds of technological changes right. that you don't really manage well okay. so I just think that uh, since luxury brands have become very mature monoline brands in in uh, e-commerce they need less and less uh, multi-brand online marketplaces mm-hmm. I think they'll always exist but they better add more value for example personal shoppers. They should be, because they're multi-brand, they can be objective and independent across mm-hmm. brands for to serve the interests of the client. But I don't see that. No. I see that in the top 1%, the top 5%, they're playing with it, but they haven't mastered that yet.
0: And another one you have here is the business of fashion confronts irrelevancy head on. Yes. Talk about that.
1: You know, there's a lot of issues out there. In, uh, I can't even remember all the issues we put down and we have to shorten the list, <laughs> whether it's uh, sustainability and waste whether it's the fact that there's too many brands out there. Uh, many are stuck with, uh, you know, brick and mortar. Um, I would say, you know, just labor issues, right? Uh, and uh, and really retaining talent. There's a lot of talent that's going into travel and many other services. So the fashion industry needs to really lead again. They were always the leaders. They were always the, the sizzle and the steak in many ways. And now I see just that... Since clients have moved on to travel and wellness and other categories, uh, fashion is being left behind.
0: Is there anything else you want to cover on that? Were there any surprises to you that came out of that study? Anything that, that, that shocked you a little bit?
1: Well, I have to say I, have yeah. to, I was surprised at how resilient the store continues to be. Uh, and I think that uh, – I don't think that those empty spaces will remain empty. I think we'll see many different innovative goods and services – a lot of wellness, a lot of fitness, a lot of medical, occupy those spaces. So I'm not worried about the storefronts uh, because they will be transformed. There will be plenty of jobs for people in the luxury industry.
0: Well, that's good. So before I get into my final luxury item question, I do want to ask you your opinion. Where do you think the luxury industry is going to be in five years?
1: I think it will continue to rise and thrive. And and by the way, I'm a little worried about the um, Chinese uh the virus that's right. out there right now because mm-hmm. that could be a black swan event so just
0: you know, like hong kong
1: hopefully yes hong kong although hong kong is a is a contained yeah but we there have was
0: a, yeah. that was yeah. impacting the the luxury brands that were in those markets correct correct yeah.
1: but this is bigger this is bigger this could be yeah. an economic crisis because yeah. we depend so much on china right. but barring any major black swan events mm-hmm. the luxury industry will continue to thrive but as you can see Uh, investment in the groups i just read this morning that louis vuitton is opening up a restaurant in london right there could be a hotel coming that's the louis vuitton brand Mm -hmm. so i think that the brands will begin to explore just like Harrods has right right? other spaces yeah and especially services technology uh food beverage uh just more experiential what we call experiential right They'll be, they'll be investing in other categories, leveraging those brands. I think a brand that has done a beautiful job of it is Bulgari. The Bulgari hotels are phenomenal. I've mm-hmm. stayed in the one in Milan. The service, they, they did a venture with uh, Ritz-Carlton. And so by partnering, I think luxury will go. Uh, brands that are stalwarts, that are the pinnacle right now, will begin to explore many other categories. And I think that's where luxury will go. There will be a lot of upstarts. But I think luxury will always be relevant because people always want the best of something. Every category there's a luxury element, even in medicine. I think we'll see a lot more medical luxury. Some people may not like it, but there's a there's a luxury emergency room by Lenox Hill Hospital, um, and you pay your 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 money. And I think that luxury always helps to support the rest of the marketplace. So I think that many innovations that come from luxury will pervade and manifest in the mainstream market, and that's good for everyone. Right.
0: So my final question, which I asked all my guests, the luxury item question. So if you were stranded on a desert island and you could have one luxury item with you, and it can't be a form of transportation, and it can't be anything that's connected to a mobile you know, mobile device, a mobile service, what would that one luxury item be?
1: It would be a bed for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What's wrong with the sand?
1: It would be uh, yeah. uh, no no. <laughs> it would be a wonderful bed with a mattress, maybe temperature control, but it would be a bed because I think that is one of the most nurturing products on the planet and if I were stranded, I sure would like to after a long day of hunting for food, I would love to come back to a nice bed and have a great rest.
0: Well, if Casper is still around when that <laughs> happens, perhaps they'll, you know, figure out a way to deliver that to you. Um, So anyway, Milton, thank you so much. You're a great guest. I really appreciate your insights. Very kind of you to have me. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.